0: Welcome to my den. If you're a longtime listener of this show, you know that I love to explore conversations with people doing education differently. We had Ted Dintersmith on a few months back talking about just what school could be as a whole. And now we're on a bit of a roll. If you've listened to the James Fellows episode talking about how we can create alternative pathways into careers for students or adults who don't have the same access to social capital and the types of career pathways that kids who go to college are at least told they're going to be able to reach. And today's conversation is a continuation of that discussion from a different perspective. We're going to have a follow-up episode with James Fellows co-founder uh, Chance Blue Montgomery in a few weeks so stay tuned for that. And in the middle of these two conversations, I got the wonderful chance to talk with the founder of climb hire Nitsan Pellman. Now Nitsan is an incredible woman has an amazing story that you'll get to hear today. I, I mean if you can imagine, getting to the age of 20 and not even knowing really how to read and then climbing out of that and building yourself up to a point where you are a three-time social entrepreneur who has made such an impact on hundreds and thousands of lives. Her story is just phenomenal. I'll let her tell it in her words today. Pay special attention in today's episode to how climb higher is creating the type of network and social capital opportunities that Ivy League universities have for their alumni, but it's done for folks from lower income situations or from populations of, of underserved people. Now. Climb Hire was started in 2019, so Nitsan is just four years in, and the type of impact she's been able to make on these types of job seekers is phenomenal. Um, I would highly suggest if you enjoy today's conversation, just going to check out Climb Hire. It's it's a play on words, so it's climb and then hire, H-I-R-E check out their site and the types of learning tracks that they offer. Uh, You could actually become an employer. If you're looking for a way to diversify your workforce and to really access these high potential people, as I'm sure you heard from the James fellows episode and we'll hear from chances episode of what's happening in the UK, Nissan's doing a very, very similar thing here in the U S sending their people on to become Salesforce, administrators, digital marketing, professionals, um, data analytics staff. So I really, really encourage you to check out her website and her work if you enjoy the conversation today. I am super pumped for you to hear this. Make sure that if you're not following us on social that you go check us out. We are publishing teasers now for each of the episodes coming out every given week. So you can see what amazing leader we're going to be interviewing next. Uh, You can find us wherever you get your social at Native Digital Show on Instagram, LinkedIn, etc., etc. So uh So I will not hold us any further. Enjoy this episode, Nitsan is amazing. Without further ado, buckle up your seats or your time machines if you're cool like that, and join me in my living room with the amazing Nitsan Pelman. You're listening to Native Digital, Native Analog, the show where we unpack the collisions and commonalities between my generation and yours. I believe that if you don't have a native digital on your board of directors, your leadership team, or at least one you pay to pester you like a fly in your ear, your business won't survive. Let's change that today. Awesome. And don't let me screw up the pronunciation of your name. Is it Nitsan? Nitsan. Nitsan. Okay. Yes. That is, by the way, that is just beautiful. And your daughter as well, and her name, or- mm-hmm. Orly, you said? Mm-hmm. Orly? was the history? Hebrew names.
1: Um, mine means
0: a bud of a flower
1: in Hebrew, and hers is my light. Um, we both have like Israeli names, basically, but we're not Israeli. <laughs>
0: That's beautiful. So what what inspired your your parents to name you Nitzan and then your daughter to continue that Hebrew lineage?
1: Um my my parents are children of Holocaust survivors. And so the establishment of a Jewish homeland and a Jewish state was really meaningful to them, and so they gave us Israeli names and I kind of continue that tradition.
0: That's incredible. I so my name, I've always thought that the the Hebrew version is so much more beautiful, and I will screw up this pronunciation. But isn't something like Hana? Hana, mm-hmm. yes. Mm-hmm. I've always thought, wouldn't it be amazing? My, I have um, supposedly my great great grandmother was Jewish. And the tradition sort of continued, and we discovered in our genealogy these connections that I had never thought of before. And I thought, wow, wouldn't it have been nice if I had been named Hana instead of, instead of Hannah?
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's hard to pronounce the C-H, and it's pronounced Chah, so um, Hannah. And like, it's just, if you haven't grown up speaking that way, it's kind of like a hard thing to say.
0: That, so do you speak Hebrew at all? Speak a
1: little, yeah. I grew up Orthodox, so I grew up in a pretty religious environment for a long time.
0: Wow. Yeah, yeah. I, I can imagine. Do speak a little bit, or it's like it's so um, different, just how that entire like language works, and I can't wrap my brain around it. From the folks in my life who do speak some, you know, some Hebrew or whatnot, or read in Hebrew. Oh my gosh, it's so different, which is mm-hmm. amazing.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. It's a, it's a very rich culture and a very rich history. So where do you live, Hannah?
0: I'm in Asheville, North Carolina. So up in the mountains, we have our, our, um, hillbillies who you can't even understand some of the pronunciation of their English. So it's like an entirely different language here, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. But speaking of, of rich history and, and things, I want to actually get us started on a spicy topic before we go back and Get to know you, and I cannot wait to get to know you better through this whole conversation. But um, you shared something recently in a video that I saw that you were just being very open about in your childhood. I think it was first grade, where you were like labeled as a, a special ed child, or essentially given one of those labels that all of our kids get at some point in their very, very, very early years. And I'm really curious, like, what did that label do to you or mean to you at as a first grader at that time and um and then we'll sort of i want to expound on this of like what does this mean to other kids and the the way that we're sort of labeling them from a really early age
1: yeah i mean it's hard to know because at this point now it was you know 35 years ago um and I think the way that we assessed kids thirty five and forty and fifty year plus ago is really different than the way that we do it today. Um, so I just I remember that I just kind of struggled with the way that education was was kind of presented. So much of learning in classrooms, in Older, more traditional environments, where teacher stands in front of kids and speaks, and kids engulf learning that way. And most people don't learn that way. People learn by doing. They learn by interacting. They learn by moving. And I just didn't learn in that traditional way. And so school was always hard. Um, and once you get a label, then you live into that label and it's really hard to not live into it. And um, so teachers had really low expectations. I remember essentially learning the same thing year over year over year, like, you know, September would roll around and they would be like, let's start with this grammar lesson. And it was like the exact same thing we had learned the year before. And so it was really demoralizing. it didn't it didn't convey that there were higher expectations for us as kids that had these labels, and they would pull us out into classes. And so, you know, we gave ourselves our own name. We called ourselves the stupid kids. And you know, it was the stupid kid classroom. and it was a really humiliating um, period of life. And I remember just wanting to be as far away from school as quickly as possible. Um, So that I just wouldn't be in that environment for any longer than I had to be, which I think is why, you know, then the hole gets deeper and deeper because then you don't want to do the homework and you don't want to do the things that would catch you up because you just feel bad. Um, So I would say that that was true for most of my growing up life. I finished high school without ever having read a book and pretty much like couldn't really write or read at a level that made sense to another adult. Um, And then there was a really big switch for me.
0: Thank you for for sharing that. So just going back for a moment to that, you know, first grade when you're getting these labels and you you said the kids in your classroom, you labeled yourself the stupid kids. Like what sort of things were you hearing from teachers or administrators or whatever that caused you to start labeling yourself that way?
1: I mean, I think that there's something so physical about pulling yourself out of one space and into another. And everybody who is moving from one space to another is labeled in the same way. Um, so I think that there's just some natural things that kind of occur. Um, And and honestly, this is why they've gotten most schools districts do not track kids in this way anymore. There's a much more integrated um, school system out there. They just don't pull kids out in the same or they, they might pull them out but um, it's more for, like, specialized learning experiences, one-on-one, as opposed to, like, this whole group of kids now is, like, in this separate classroom. And that just creates so much stigma. And I think that there's just, just really low expectations for what we could accomplish. Like, people didn't push us. They didn't challenge us. Um, and they didn't find other ways to make learning interesting. Learning was just boring. And it was... And it was the place that you felt the worst about yourself. So then, you know, you just internalize those labels more and more and more because nobody finds a different way to help you experience or understand the world.
0: It's really interesting that you describe, you know, the 30, 40 years ago, this was happening and, and many much of it's different now. And I'm really curious what you're seeing maybe with, you know, your daughter and, in your school systems, um, I work a lot with schools right now and with lots of teachers, etc. And to me, a lot of those things haven't gone away. Like what you were just describing, maybe it's not the same sort of segmentation in the exact same way, but there are still um, these sort of quote-unquote like rigorous levels of academia that we hold kids to that no longer mean much, but allow labels to be put on to students and for education to continue the same way with that that you were describing a second ago of the teacher just dumping a bunch of knowledge on kids and expecting them to retain it. Um, And then test take and test drill and SAT prep and the test prep industry is $6 billion. I just Mm. found, you know, found it a couple months ago. So it's the idea that the school system has shifted entirely. I don't. I don't see that with the schools that I work with. And I'm really curious. Like, what are you seeing in your area in terms of the way that knowledge or the transfer of knowledge or teaching has evolved, or has it?
1: I mean, I couldn't tell you, you know, more specifically right now. Because I don't work in the K-12 education space and haven't for a long time. I did work in it for uh, the 15 years of my early professional career, and I I felt deeply resonant with the kids that were growing up in low-income communities that were black and brown. And I got into the education space right after college through Teach for America and was you know, felt like so many of the things that they were talking about as inequities in our society, I could see them um, on a very personal level of just what kinds of things do we say or not say, but communicate in nonverbal ways to kids of color, to kids that are in poverty. Um, and that was why I went into this work. I, I felt like i more deeply connected with them than, to be honest, many of my white affluent peers that I grew up with. So I, I've worked now for almost 25 years on creating different kinds of educational experiences for the people that we serve in the various organizations that I've built. Um, and all of that comes from the very deep belief that if we believe in people in a different way and we end up invest in people in a different way, we help them see and maximize their potential in different ways.
0: I, I love that. And that's clearly what I want to spend the majority of our time talking about. And I want to go back to your story here in just a second. But out of your climbers, I'm just curious have any of them, or most of them, or many of them, shared with you that they experienced a similar sort of? Labeling or you know segmentation when they were in school. I guess just walk me through like the climbers, their typical age range, and then do they sort of tell experience these sort of things as well?
1: Yeah, um, I started about four years ago. I started a workforce organization that helps people from low income communities to build skills and to build social capital and relationships that allow them to go from blue collar working environments like retail and Lyft and Uber kind of roles and help them to get middle-class jobs that pay living wages. And I oftentimes share this story about myself in the earliest parts of their cohort experience. And it's, it's really intentional. And it comes from the fact that I want them to know what our value system is and what our belief system is. And to also know that they're not alone, many and then many of them ultimately come and share that they've had similar stories in their own educational um, backgrounds, and that that's felt very limited, limiting to them.
0: Yeah, that, no surprise, but at the same time, it's it is interesting to be having this conversation right now and knowing that, like, as a result of thirty or forty years ago and the way that those kids were set up, that like. Now that's being reflected, but then you're able to give them this path to climb higher, which I love you. I love your name because it's so like literally descriptive of exactly what you're doing with, with these incredible people. So ha- walk me back through. So you said you graduated 18, you hadn't read a book by that point, really struggling. And then somehow fast forward to now and you're a CEO of an incredible organization, like what what occurred? What turned the switch?
1: Um, okay, so I grew up as an Orthodox Jew. Um, I grew up in a, a very religious Jewish community. As a result of that, we had separate gendered schools. So there was a girl school and a boy school, um, and they didn't have much to do with each other. Our environments were relatively segregated. But every so often, you know, we kind of had an activity with the boys, which only made us quite honestly, more boy crazy. (laughs) But, um, (laughs) uh, so from that, I ended up having a boyfriend in high school, um, who didn't have the same label for me because he didn't go to my high school. He wasn't in my classes. He wasn't part of my day to day, um, high school experience, but kind of went to the, um, counterpart high school that was the boys high school. So, um, and he had the diametrically opposite educational experience to my own. He was being primed to go to Harvard since he was very young. Um, he was writing speeches for the mayor of Los Angeles when we were 15 years old and was just this incredibly, uh, his name was Zach, and he like uh, walked around and everyone would ask him for the Zach fact of the day. He was just such a lover of knowledge and learning And uh, he was the valedictorian of our class, and he did end up going to Harvard. And he was my boyfriend in college, my boyfriend at the end of high school and at the beginning of college. And, uh, And so I went to Harvard a lot as the girlfriend of a Harvard student. And all of a sudden, I went from having a stupid label to having a smart label, because people just assumed if I was the girlfriend of a Harvard student that I must be intelligent. And Zach was also such a lover of knowledge and of learning. And we would spend weekends, like, talking about Michelangelo's art and Kantian ethics and why the Sunnis and Shiites in the Middle East have been in thousands of years of um, tribal strife. And um, I just came to learn and understand that I actually loved learning. And uh, and it was through this kind of untraditional relationship, the relationship of a boyfriend, as opposed to the relationship of a teacher or the relationship of a, of an educator of some kind. It was somebody that was a peer um, who loved learning so much themselves. And then through osmosis, we came to spend so much of our time in our own bonding learning together. And that really opened me up. But it also came with a very, very painful realization that I had 18 years of catch-up work to do. My skills were nowhere near where they needed to be. Um, they were, you know, many grades behind. Um, and that was really painful. But I kind of had this awakening or epiphany that I um, knew that I was capable, a lot more capable than I ever thought I was. And then I had to do the catch-up work. I had to teach myself how to write, I had to teach myself how to read in my young twenties, which was humiliating and painful. Um, and not short, but I invested, I invested the time and I invested the energy and I invested and pushed through those feelings of, um, of shame, um, which is, you know, hard to do. A lot of people want to hide. And I kind of very seriously committed to really catching up in every way. And I, oftentimes my whole world became Ivy League, um, very quickly my um almost all of the people that i became close to in my 20s and 30s went to ivy league schools and my peers, my people at work, like everyone. And I remember becoming very close years ago to um, Michelle Obama's speechwriter. Uh, we went on a big trip together through an organization we both were connected to, and we spent um, 10 days living together in Israel. And she, she had gone to Harvard for multiple degrees, and um, obviously had been in the White House for years. And she said to me, like, you code Harvard so deeply. And it was like such a compliment, you know, of yeah I know i code I code this way. I spent years molding myself to code this way, but the people that I really identify with the most are the people that come from the low income communities and come from those labels that um undermined them and undermined their capacity for so many years and I'm essentially trying to bridge these two worlds um, much more thoughtfully together.
0: Thank you for that. That is so interesting, and I want to repeat back a picture I'm getting in my head to see, tell me if, tell me if I'm getting this correct or completely wrong. Cause that, that is very <laughs> likely, but it almost sounds like as I'm visualizing your story that you had this experience growing up in high school, and then suddenly were transported to a new type of social framework. And by being a part of that group, it's almost like you're not only was your like brain expanded from the knowledge of, you know, what your boyfriend and his peer circle sort of acclimated to, but it's like you, by being a part of this social circle became more like them. Like as in with the old adage of who you will become, who you surround yourself with. It was so true. It's like, you take this, take you who were labeled for some stupid reason as, you know, not capable or not high aptitude. As soon as you put you in a world of people who are were labeled and just mentally, you know, taught and it was, I'm sure, communicated to them by their parents that you're expected to succeed and you're expected to be at Harvard and all of this. That suddenly your aptitude also blossomed. Would that be a, a fair statement?
1: Yeah, when you when you tell people that they're exceptional and that they are expected to be exceptional and expected to be the best. Um, you know, it comes with many other complexes (laughs) on the other side. Um, So I I would never say that people that go to Harvard don't (laughs) have many of their own challenges. Um, But they're different challenges. They don't wonder about whether or not they're capable. They always wonder about whether or not they're enough. But they certainly, you know, have have sort of like the basics around what they could be doing in the world. And that is, you know, really different than um, the world that I grew up in.
0: So I have to ask, because this is such a hot topic right now, ChatGPT. So going back to like when you were in your early 20s and you're having to learn all these things that high school, you know, you, you didn't come out of high school with and um, your learning style is different and you're having to like level up. If you had had something like ChatGPT, what, what would that have done for you?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a really great question, and I've been thinking so much about this in the last couple of months as ChatGTP has quickly subsumed all of our lives. <laughs> um, and I think in my space, I just came back from our industry conference with seven thousand people who are focused on ed tech and upskilling and workforce and um, and higher ed. And this was, you know, the topic of of everyone's conversations is what are we going to do for ChatGTP and how will higher ed reinvent itself? How will workforce and upskilling reinvent itself? What jobs are going to be around? Do we need to teach writing anymore? Do we need to teach English? Do we need to teach these things? The problem is that, yes, like you could have um, ChatGTP do your writing for you, but if you don't know how to assess whether or not it's correct or not correct or how to make it better, um you'll have important skills that you'll miss in your products and your work products. So I think it's the art of writing is really the art of thinking. And if you can't think critically, then you're going to have a hard time doing anything that's valuable in society when we know that the knowledge economy is going to be outsourced more and more and more. So then the economy that is going to be paying um, is the critical thinking economy as opposed to the knowledge um, creation uh, economy. So in some ways, it calls for more education than ever before, but very different kinds of education. And I think we're all in the middle of reinventing that and rethinking all of that right
0: now. I want to hone in on something you just said which I as a Gen Zer who's actively working in this space and building communities in this space and and all this is I think is so critical. You just said, if I heard you correctly, that the creative thinking economy is going to be one of the most important possible skills and economies to create for students. Is that did I hear you correctly? Yeah. I think so. Yeah, I I could not agree more because we're essentially living in this time, and perhaps it's just paraphrasing what you just said, but we're living in this time now where the actual process of writing something, so here, I'll put this in, in the context of an example. So my sister is highly dyslexic she's in school as a nursing student right now, and she is highly dyslexic. Writing something is like struggling to get the first sentence onto a piece of paper is so, 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 so difficult for her. And yet she's someone who has incredible critical thinking skills, right? Like she has, she's constantly generating ideas and thoughts. And we were sitting down the other day and I was showing her GPT. And of course, all of her teachers at school are telling her not to use it. And um, she's sitting down with this tool going, oh, my gosh, if I input things the correct way. So to take an example, let's say you're writing a literary analysis on The Great Gatsby. Well, you can't just plop into GPT and say, um, write me an essay on The Great Gatsby. Like, you won't get anything. You won't get anything valuable. What you have to know how to do is to say, today, I'd like your help writing an essay or a literary analysis on The Great Gatsby. Please give me 10 topic ideas from the book that focus on the generational divide. And mm-hmm. then it you know generates the topics, then you say, okay, I love number three about, um, I don't know the shallowness of Daisy's character and how it, you know, so basically the point is as you're going through these prompts, you're having to be the one who's idea generating, critically thinking, thinking about analysis. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a tool to make you smarter, right? So if you choose that topic, then you say, okay, I love that topic. Now please write an outline for my essay. Okay, now please write the body paragraph of this. I like this. I don't like that. This communicates the topic. So Basically, the point being, if you're a student or anyone who's using this type of tool, it's not enough to say, let's just completely replace humans. It's how do I leverage a tool like this to creatively think and to build my own analysis and problem solving skills mm-hmm. and recognize as, as students or as educators or, or whoever that The point of technologies like this is you have to, we're to a point where the only thing you're having to create is the idea and be able to critically think and analyze and process through it. And to me, that opens up. Just literal millions of worlds of possibility for students who formerly may have had challenges, and I can't speak to that as I was, <laughs> I was probably more like your boyfriend than anyone else. Just the high expectations, the high, you know, setting. My sister was not like that. You know, she struggled so much through school and still struggles, and um, and so it's interesting to speak to someone who also had a similar, you know, experience with struggling through the way education is now, and I'm just fascinated. You know, to hear you say critical thinking is the skill, and like we've got to really focus on that, so these tools make sense and actually help us.
1: Yeah, there's um, I've seen like that. There's a whole new category of job out there, and it's called Chat GTP or AI um, uh, prompt engineer. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's a little bit of what you just you know just sort of like simulated through is how do you ask the right questions, and how do you then make the product better and better and better? And can you analyze the product that ChatGTP is giving you to know whether or not it's good or not good um, and where it needs to be tweaked? And so, I mean, my favorite prompt question of the last, like, two weeks <laughs> is to ask people, like, what have you put into ChatGTP um, and, you know, what what has it given you that has been interesting? And um, people are thinking of so many creative ways to use it. For instance, um, you know when companies do 360 reviews, uh, so you have each peer or colleague write a review, and then the manager usually takes all of those um, documents, synthesizes it, and then writes one big review for the person. And they pull quotes and all these kinds of things that they're using the peers as one lens to look at this person's performance. And then the manager is also looking at their, you know, metrics and other things. And a colleague of mine took nine peer reviews, put them into ChatGTP, and asked ChatGTP to write the overall review, synthesizing the nine reviews, and said it was great. Um so uh I think that more and more the creation of the work is and by the way that that same person also told me that um, they, they're a part of a university system and they put into chat, GTP could create a phlebotomy curriculum for incoming freshmen on how to learn, you know, the full, the basics of phlebotomy. And, um, and it generated a really great, um, curriculum. And then, you know, I said, okay, well tweak it so that it's not for incoming freshmen of college, but it's incoming freshmen of high school. And it could do that like, you know, really easily. And, and so, I think it's, again, one of these things where the knowledge itself is not going to be um, what is valuable anymore, but it is how we as humans interact with that knowledge and critique it or make it better. uh, Just what were the human aspects of that work?
0: 100%. 100%. And in fact, um, you may find that's interesting. So a couple of months ago, I had Chris Lockhead on the show. And he is, he's had a long career in Silicon Valley and is now like the, he calls himself the godfather of category design, but he's basically the guy who created category design and that whole concept. And, um, anyway, he has his own podcast. That's called, um, follow your different. And I was listening to an episode recently with him and, oh my gosh, don't let me screw up his name. He's the CEO of Clary, Andy Barn, Andy Byron, something like that. Um, anyway, they were talking about this powerful, powerful way they're using GPT where his clients basically are all companies who are using Clary to prevent revenue leak in their um, organization. So identifying, you know, pockets of revenue that are being missed and whatnot. Um, anyway, they just trained their own version of GPT via the API integration and they basically essentially launched Rev GPT. So it's revenue GPT. And um, he calls it was hilarious. He was talking about how The uh, RevGPT is ChatGPT's rich uncle that makes all the money, but it's basically this scraper and they've taught, trained RevGPT to essentially look at all their client data and understand opportunities and pull things to light. And it was something like a crazy 500 new sales leads that they were able to garner in like 24 hours from using RevGPT to comb data. And so, you know, here I am thinking, wow, the, the implications of this are, So broad spanning, you know, whether it's um, a talent organization like Climb Higher or, you know, a revenue organization or Salesforce, or like whatever, the amount of data and insights that GPT can produce is going to unlock so many potential, um, so much potential for the individual humans and also for organizations. And um, so anyway, I just to go down this route a little bit, I'm really curious, like, how are you guys thinking about GPT at Climb Higher? Like, are there um, applications to help, you um, multiply the opportunities or the options for these climbers who are coming to you and, you know, upskilling and and getting on new career paths from a very different world or a very different type of job. How are you guys thinking about GPT? Are there any applications at Climb Higher?
1: Not yet. Um, I would say, uh, you know, we're kind of watching where the puck is going right now. Um, we've been launching a digital marketing cohort um, this year, uh, in partnership with Google, it's an e-commerce, um, uh, it's an e-commerce, um, learning track. And we've been talking a lot to, um, ad agencies and sort of like the big, um, holding companies in the, you know, agency world. And it's, and it's great. They seem to have a lot of demand for entry-level jobs and, um, you know, I'm optimistic about it. But also watching closely, it's, uh, we haven't seen large scale companies knock out people yet um, for chat GTP. We are just seeing like use cases of it start to, you know, flutter around. More of what we've seen in the last six months is layoffs from tech companies who were just too bloated from the pandemic um, and needed to cut people. I don't know how much that was connected to chat just yet. Um, but I would say in the next you know three, six, 12 months, we'll need to watch this very carefully to figure out. A digital marketer won't need to create their own copy um, for marketing ads in the same way. But to our earlier point, they'll need to tweak them. They'll need to use data. They'll need to um, figure out what's working and what's not working and then modify. And my sense is that humans will still need to do that work, but it is different work than maybe it was, um, six months ago, even.
0: Are there any, um, positive sort of opportunities you could see this expanding for someone? So just just to think out loud here for a second, I'd be really curious to get your thoughts. So, If there's someone who, let's say they've been working at Walmart or Kohl's or some of the the blue collar industries you were talking about at the beginning, where maybe they've been working, yeah, in retail or or whatnot, and they're looking to get upskilled through climb higher into a job at Salesforce or Google or whatnot, is there any role you think that GPT could play in connecting some of those like missing pieces from maybe the career that they were in or the job they were in into getting prepared for uh, the type of career that you guys are training them for? Um,
1: I don't know yet. I think it's still so nascent. Um, I'm reading about it every day. I'm, you know, following what's what, you know, the biggest commentaries on this, but I don't think people have kind of um, overhauled their businesses quite yet. So, it's not, it's not, it's still very much in the earliest moments of this space. And I think we have to watch it. I think the biggest thing that organizations like ours can do is be agile and nimble. So, um, our focus is on helping people build relationships and to build social capital, alongside of in-demand skills. And to be honest, we're really agnostic about what the in-demand skills are as long as they're in demand in the economy. And so we launched four years ago, um, training people as Salesforce administrators We've since launched a project management learning track, a financial services learning track, a digital marketing learning track, a cybersecurity learning track. Um, we just you know, keep adding things as we see the economy have demand for them and also take away um, some of these as we see you know, the economy not have so, um, as much demand as we thought that the data was telling us. There's also a very different set of needs that companies have for entry-level talent, and especially entry-level talent coming from non-traditional backgrounds, i.e. if you've been a cashier at a Trader Joe's for the last five years, and now you want to get an entry-level job in a technology company, um, that's a non-traditional hire as opposed to maybe somebody who went to an Ivy League school. Um, And so we... There's there's jobs that companies want people for that have experience, and then there's, you know, that sort of like on-ramps on job. And, for instance, a, a, an example of this is project management. There's an endless number of jobs for experienced project managers out there, which is why Google created a certification for project management. And it was very much rooted in a lot of data, but we have not found that a lot of companies are going to hire entry-level project managers because you have to manage something before you can, you know, be a manager of projects. And um, and so the data kind of is a little bit misleading around what's the on-ramp versus what's the raw demand out there. That make sense. Thank
0: you for that. Yes, yes. No, it's it's helpful to see first of all, I love what you're doing. And I love the fact that there are these on-ramps. Um, and I want to talk here in a second, a bit about the social capital, because I know that um, you've brought that up a couple times and it's very, very core to what you all are doing. Um, I, if I can encourage you a little bit, I speak to, oh my gosh, at least a dozen or more CEOs a week. And we're having these conversations about, you know, GPT and all of this. And I, I just cannot like stress enough just based on what I'm hearing from other CEOs like how much this sort of um uh, I don't even know how to phrase it like almost like having AI mentorship, AI sort of guidance in GPT through every process and every company is going to be so integral to like the future. It is it's mind blowing. So anyway, I just thank you for engaging in that sort of rabbit trail with me because this is such an important topic and I think we're going to begin to see not just the negative implications like the layoffs or whatever of replacement of jobs. It's literally I think going to expand so many opportunities for agile companies like you mentioned to really adopt this and say, how do we create new, net new pathways and all these unlocking of doors that never could have been opened before through tools like this. So anyway, we we could spend a long time on that. And I do want to shift gears and talk about social capital here really quickly. Um, So you've shared with me, I think on our first call that essentially what you're really passionate about, or one thing you're really passionate about is like helping these folks have come from really different backgrounds to build a network much like we would have from, you know, college or or whatnot, that's this social capital um, ladder. And so just tell me a little bit about that and, and why that's a crucial part of, of Climb Higher.
1: I mean, in some ways it actually is like a perfect um, segue from our chat GTP conversation. Because as our knowledge economy in some ways gets eviscerated more and more. Um, the need for relationships become even more palpable. And so four years ago, I was an entrepreneur in residence at LinkedIn. And when I was there, they put a referral button on their platform. And what they learned by doing that was that the vast majority of job seekers got jobs through relationships and networks and warm introductions. It was through referrals. And I realized for the first time ever, I had done my own reflection on where did I get all of my jobs from? And every single opportunity I've ever had has come through a network, a relationship, a warm introduction that led to the next warm introduction. And so that led me to think, okay, well, where do networks come from? Where do relationships come from? If you are born into a middle or affluent class neighborhood, your family has probably been building relationships since you were young. And and oftentimes families work hard to get their kids into the most privileged preschools, kindergartens, For exactly this reason they're purchasing networks from a very young age. But the next time that networks get a little bit more democratized is in college, where people live in dorms, they sing in acapella clubs, they join lacrosse teams, they are in a fraternity or a sorority. They're just doing things that are allowing them to spend hundreds of hours with people in their age bracket um and building organic connections in this coming of age period of life. And oftentimes those relationships open doors forever. And if you don't get to go to those schools, because those schools are expensive, they're cost prohibitive for most Americans. And um the vast majority of low income people who are people of color go to community colleges. And that's where, you know, it's the most affordable. And so For those people, they have to work. And they're running into class, running out of class, and then off to their jobs, um, which are usually retail jobs, and taking care of family members. And they don't have the time or the luxury good of hanging out for hours on end with people. And so we see a more bifurcated set of opportunities that come from that. Um, If you have a lot of downtime, you can build relationships that open up doors. And if you don't, you end up stuck. And my hypothesis was that there's all this hidden and overlooked talent that are stuck in those Trader Joe jobs. And if we could find them and help them to build not only those in-demand skills, but that social capital, those relationships that then help them open up doors we then have an opportunity to make a very large set of changes, create economic opportunity, but solve real problems for companies that say that they want that hungry, motivated um, talent that they, that they say that they can't find. And many times they can't find it because they don't have overlapping networks into those communities.
0: This is Huge. Thank you so much for sharing that. And just as we sort of close out our time together, are there any stories that you want to share of climbers who have, you know, like taken this network, taken the social capital, been able to um, been able to succeed or, or get on into new networks? Like what what comes to your mind right now?
1: Yeah, I mean, we see hundreds of examples of this now. We teach the value system in our community when climbers start in our program um, of saying, you're here to learn skills, but not just for yourself. Um, You're here to learn skills and build relationships so that you can then help somebody else get a job when you're in a, you know, a great job yourself. And we've seen over 10 climbers successfully refer peers um, into jobs and and help them secure jobs. Um, and that's just the very beginnings of, uh, of the network effect. We've seen um, volunteers who come to our events and socialize with climbers on Zoom and help them to practice that ubiquitous first interview question, tell me about yourself, or they'll help them with other interview preparation work. But in the process, they're building social capital, and many of those um, industry professionals that come out to our events – Um, at night on Zoom and meet climbers ultimately are very inspired by them and are like, wow, I totally want to hire this kind of person in my company. And then they go and tell their HR team and their um, talent acquisition team. And then we start to see people get hired uh, through that. And so, um, you know, if you go to an Ivy League school, the thing that the career services You know, department tells you is go find people who went to the school and write to them on LinkedIn and network. Um, And we want to create that alternative network here at Climb Higher, an alternative to an an Ivy League network, um, where people of color who have broken out of blue collar jobs and into white collar jobs um, are then helping the next generation of climbers and the next generation and the next generation to have that same success through the network.
0: Thank you for that. That's such a good way to bring us to the end. I know you've got to run. So is there anything that you would leave us with, anything you want to touch on that we haven't covered?
1: Um, I would say, you know, I live in Silicon Valley. Um, I live in the Bay Area. Um, and it's a it's an environment where, you know, founders oftentimes went to Stanford. Stanford is the big, you know, college out here in Berkeley, Cal. Um, and then if you're a founder and you pull a couple people in from your class that you went to school with, and then all of a sudden your whole company kind of looks the same and has the same backgrounds and same education, and then one day you wake up and you're like, oh, wait, we need diversity. Diversity is important. You know, every company says diversity is important, and every company has D&I initiatives and wants to hire more diversity. If you don't start from the beginning, Um, it's really hard to diversify later. No one wants to be that first black person on the staff. No one wants to be the token. Um, It has to be organic and it has to be real and it has to be genuine. And the only way to do that is to build those teams that are diverse early on. And um, for the talent managers out there um, and the HR directors, I would say look for networks that aren't your own, um, that aren't similar and find ways to break into other kinds of talent. And Kleinmeyer is a great place to do that, but there's plenty of others. Um, Because if you don't, the problem gets harder and harder as the culture and as the optics of the company, i.e. if somebody goes to your website and they mostly just see white people, they're not going to want to come to your company. And so this is a problem to work on early and to solve early. And when you do it, and you tap into diverse networks, more diversity comes from that.
0: So, so good. So, so good. And just one final question here. So, if a talent manager or someone wants to gain access to that type of network you just described, can they literally just join Climb Hire, like as a partner? Is that how that works?
1: Yeah. We have over 50 employer partners and pretty soon it'll be closer to a hundred who have hired from our ranks, hired our people, come back to us and hire more every time they have open slots. Um, we have a whole talent and employer partnerships team, and we would be very happy to serve up talent to anyone who's looking for it.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much for being on the show. You're welcome back anytime. I have a feeling we could talk about all of these different things for hours and hours. So I appreciate you.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much, Hannah. Um, Appreciate the time and all of the curiosity that
0: goes into making these podcasts feel so um, uniquely authentic. Thanks for listening to the Native Digital, Native Analog Show. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe, leave a rating and review, and tell your friends. If you're looking to connect and talk more about attracting and retaining Native Digitals, You can reach me at hannahgwilliams.com. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.